which is fascinating that they acknowledge a ghostwriter because this is not a good book. <laughs> if you're reading it, it's because it is banana pants and you get a little view into the insane mind of Tyra Banks. And that is fascinating and very enjoyable. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Kareen from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Everyone and welcome to another episode of Keep It Fictional from the Port Moody Public Library. I'm your host today, Virginia, and I've got a special guest here today. It is the Kana. Now, it is fate, I'm sure, that the Kana and I met just two days ago, and I think because they know that I'm getting ready for this episode, and they just want to be here for it. For those of you who are listening to the podcast, the Kana is a white duck, I think. And it is either wearing banana pants or it has the body of a banana. I'm not quite sure. I think my book friends might be able to help me out. Is he wearing banana pants or does he have a body of a banana? It's a banana dress. A banana dress. Yeah. No, he is a banana. He is a banana. That is part of him. That is his flesh that he's peeling off. There's no space for a duck body in there. No way. It's like a duck centaur kind of thing. It's like combined the two. Maybe it's one of those things. You know how trees can sometimes grow around their surroundings? Perhaps when the duck was very young, it was put into a banana peel and then sort of like a like a snail. It's its home now. Um, and then as it sort of grew and matured, its body sort of, um, you know, developed in the same way that you would if you see like a tree curving around like a fence or something like that. I think this might be one of those scenarios where nature perseveres through the interesting um through the interesting things that we put it through. I move that we dissect it. I want to see what's under the banana peel. It's live. It has feelings. Yeah, like is this exploratory surgery? What is the anesthesia that we would need for going in on this duck nana? Well, anything could happen today. Because just like the canna, there's many different ways of looking at the canna. But I would like to think for today's episode, at least, they are wearing banana pants because that is our theme for today. It is Banana Pants Week. So today we are going to talk about all kinds of books that are weird, that are strange, that are bizarre, that are like a fever dream, that are completely out of control. In other words, all my book friends have to read a Virginia book. I am so sorry, but I hope at least you think about, well, she could have picked cannibal books or she could have picked a book about sentient hair. So I think Banana Pants being like a fairy, you can interpret it whatever way you can is maybe a little bit better. Now, what for me makes a great Banana Pants book is one that even though every time you turn a page, you're like, what's happening? Or that you finish the book, not because you believe in finishing everything, every book, but that when you finish the book, you're like, I have no idea what I just read, but that's okay. Because even though you are not quite sure what is happening in the book, you still feel compelled to read it because it is still so interesting and that you just 
cannot look away. And that for me is a sign of a great Banana Pants book. And I can't wait to find out what my book friends have for me today because, of course, everyone has different definitions of banana pants. So I would love to know what kind of things they think is banana pants and also what level of banana pantsness that they have got to. So, and we'll see if the canon approves of those. And I'm going to actually going to go first today because I want to get my book talk out of the way so that I can sit back, relax and enjoy all my book friends' book talks without worrying about my own. So yeah, I told Fiona last week, I said like, I don't have a book yet. And Fiona was like, well... What are you reading when I just talk about that? Because all your books are weird anyway, basically, which is not wrong. Um, but I decided to pick this book because I want to give it some more love. I feel like people are not talking enough about this book that came out this year. And even though it's really well reviewed, it has only appeared. I've only seen it in a couple like LGBTQ plus book lists. So like it needs to have more love. And also it's a Canadian author. So I thought, you know, like, again, we need to like promote that. So the book that I've got for you today is My Volcano by John Elizabeth Stinsey. This book is about 350 pages, but it has about 250 chapters. All the stories take place mostly during June, July, and August in 2016. And of course, being a banana pants book, none of these stories occur in chronological order, of course. And these narratives, they take place all over the world and they are not related. And only very few characters actually know one another. But many of them are aware that there is a mountain that has just appeared in New York City. On June 2nd, 2016, a jogger was running in Central Park and she noticed a mountain just popped right in the middle of the park that definitely wasn't there yesterday. She didn't stick around, even though this is quite unusual, because she did not want her heart rate to go down, so she kept running. As people hear about this strange phenomena, they all flock to the park to try to see it. Some even try to climb across the barrier so they can climb onto the top and see what's up there. And all the news crew, they send people to cover the story. But after a few days, even though the mountain is growing, it's just not growing as fast as it can to make people care, to make people still think it is something that they should pay attention to. And no news channel can figure out how to capture that attention. And in fact, some people even think this might be just be a stunt to promote some movie. So the mountain keeps growing and people stop caring and soon no one is talking about this anymore. Meanwhile, in Japan, Dr. Duncan Olianka, a Nigerian folklorist, was supposed to be giving a talk at a conference with his research partner slash lover, Elfna. They know each other for quite a while and, you know, they're kind of in a relationship, but they seem like they were never in the same place long enough to be in sync. When Duncan woke up, Afna is gone. There was a note saying that, oh, there was a volcano or they think it's a volcano in, in New York. And, you know, I've got to go. They call me. They want a seismologist to go take a look and get some data. I have to fly. And, you know, I didn't want to wake you up because you have a conference today. So have a great day and have a great conference. Duncan figured, OK, well, that's OK, because, you know, we'll still see each other every day because for the last however many years, whenever they are apart for work, they can still see each other on their own video feed. They have got cameras set up all around their house. They can see each other whenever they want to. And they're not the only ones watching because this video feed is actually public. So every day, thousands of people tune in just to watch these two. They don't do anything extraordinary. 
people watch them sleep, they watch them read, they watch them do work on a computer, they watch them eat breakfast, very, very mundane things. But yet, so many viewers tune in every day. A couple of days later, Avna called Duncan and said, um, can you check to see if Mang Fuji is still there? And he's like, what do you mean? Of course, Mang Fuji is still there. And he looked outside, like, yeah, I can see Mang Fuji. But are you sure it's the actual mountain? Avna said, people in New York started to call their mountain Fuji too, because they think that it looks exactly like Mount Fuji. In fact, they think that Mount Fuji has immigrated to the States and now it's over there instead. So Duncan said, fine, I'll go up to the mountain and I will take a picture for you, okay? And us standing on the mountain so you know it's real. And that's what he did with his assistant Hitomi the next day. And while they were up there, they call Afnan say, okay, we're up on the mountain. We're here now. Okay. So we'll take a picture for you. And after a few seconds of silence, Afnan said, can you, can you step to the right a little bit? And Duncan was like, okay, sure. So he did that. And he's like, okay, well, I can see you. And Duncan said, what do you mean you can see me? Well, we've got these cameras set up on top of the mountain in New York. And I'm watching the video feed right now and I can see you. And Duncan, of course, wouldn't believe it. And it's like, I'll send you a video. And, you know, not only that, but there is a woman. There's a woman, an old woman with a torch standing nearby. Do you, do you see her? And it's weird that even though Hitomi and Duncan was there, they, wa- they watched the video and indeed they were showing up. But when they watching the video, the woman was not there. And they definitely does not remember a woman holding a torch. In Mexico City, eight-year-old Angel decides to try something different today. He noticed that in the last few days when he was with his father, you know, he usually comes with him to the plaza to sell pictures to tourists. And in the last few days, it seems like the days have been repeating themselves. He usually, like, he's nothing to do, so he just sort of run around and chase pigeons. But Today, he decided he's going to run in the other direction and he's going to ignore all the pigeons. And as he ran and ran and ran and ran, things start to disappear around him. People start to disappear. The buildings start to disappear and they start to change. New buildings showed up, new people show up. And when he finally got tired and he stopped, he was transported back to 1516 and everyone was staring at him in different clothes and speaking in a language that he does not recognize. In Mongolia, a bee just picked up some pollen from a thistle flower. It's lying around and it got stuck in the hood of a shepherd. And panicking, the bee stung the man. The face immediately got swollen and the man couldn't quite move anymore. And as he was looking at himself, he realized that his skin is turning green and needles are start poking out from his skin. As he lay there, he can see from the bee's eyes. And he was trying to get to his animals. He was trying to get to his horse. But the moment he touches them, when one of his prickles stabbed some of the animals, he could feel that he was seeing from the animal's eyes. And then suddenly all of them were crawling through the land, moving as one in one big green mass. They were absorbing all the plants and all the animals and any living things that they come in touch with. 
There are many more stories like that, and I'm not going to keep going because this will take us until tomorrow. But there are houses with lizard and elephant legs. There are women who's being turned into an insect, even though everybody like thinks that she's still a woman. And when she look at herself, she can see her own bug eye arms and bug legs. There are people making their loved ones into kites. There are homeless men given an Opo, like sort of like a snow globe that you can see all the different scenes. There are cat legs growing out from people's tummies that you have to keep pulling out to get them out of you. Even though all these stories and the amounts of them make Cloud Atlas looks like child's play, they are all united in theme and you never lose track because each of them builds on top of one another and it reinforces what the author is trying to say or what you think the author is trying to say. Even though some of them you only meet in one chapter, you will feel such emotional connection with them nonetheless, because John Elizabeth Stinsey is so good in making you feel for these characters. And all of them are craving for some sort of connection. All of them are feeling this disconnect from the world, from the other people. And they're yearning for that connection. And many of them are just ready to explode like a victim volcano and a lot of these a lot of these characters they have made some initial connection with someone some special person that they think is going to be special but none of them took the next step to nurture that initial spark and i think this book urges all of us to do so don't lose that chance and the book also talks a lot about people who don't feel belonging who cannot feel belonging because the system is not set up for them to do so in between all the chapters with all these creative and imaginative stories. Dinsey also dedicates many pages to, to remember all the people who were murdered and killed in 2016 because of police brutality, because of hate crime, because of racism, because of homophobia, including the 49 people who were shot at in a gay nightclub in Orlando. And in his acknowledgement, he He's, he apologized on behalf of the world because the world is not set up for them. And I think there's so many ways you can read the story. You're going to pick up so many different threads and different messages from the story. But I think for me, one of the most important things, is just don't ignore that volcano. Don't walk by and shrug your shoulders. Like it will explode. It will explode one day. And I love this book so, so, so much. I this I, I you know see this is my own copy because I just had to buy it. It is definitely going to be, end up on one of my top ten lists. It is one of those books I already reread weirdly because it's just it's so just there's so many things and I keep every time I pick up a chapter and because the way it's set up I can pick up a chapter and just read a little bit and I will feel so many things. So if you're ready for some feelings, you know this is the book for you. This is my volcano from John Elizabeth Stinsey. All right. So that is my bananas pants pick. So now I can sit back and listen to all your banana pants pick. I, we're going to go to Corrine next because a little like behind the scenes sort of for everybody here. We record this in the same room, as you can probably tell from our wonderful background. And every time when we talk about a book that is slightly odd, you know, and we're describing something a little weird, like Cloud Atlas, for example, Someone in this room will always go, oh, stop it, loudly. <laughs> and that person, I feel like, may have a little less tolerance for nonsense, as she likes to call it. <laughs> so I am so curious to know what kind of nonsense she has 
come up with today. So, Miss Corrine, what have you got? This genre is not for me. It's not for me. I like to be able to get from like point A to point B instead of like point A to like 87 purple wombats. Like, I just want to follow along. I want to feel like I'm part of the journey. I just want things to make sense. So this was a bit of a struggle and a little bit even more behind the scenes is that I was at the desk and I was like, what's the theme? And Virginia said banana pants and I made a face and I'm like, I'm not, I can't, I can't pick anything. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Um, And so Virginia actually picked this book for me in the hopes that I might not hate it. And maybe have a good time because um, as is well documented, if I start a book, I'm going to finish it. So whatever this journey I was on, I would have had to end it. So she recommended one and I can kind of see why she did because it's only lightly banana pants. I'd say it's like banana short trousers. How we got there. Causality still existed, um, but it is weird. And yes, at some point, Actually, near the end, I actually did shout at the book. Yeah, which is a good thing of why I was outside. So the regional office is under attack. It is under attack. It was under attack and fell. And it will be under attack later. The Morrison World Travel Concern on Park Avenue at 56th and 57th is a specialized travel agency that caters to not just the super rich, but the ultra rich. If you feel like your journey needs not five, but six Sherpas, because that's kind of what's in in the moment, then they will find that for you. If you need one yacht, that's not for them. If you need 27 yachts, one's for each of your custom cloned corgis, then they can get that for you. But this is just the storefront. Underneath, going down the elevator, you come to the real regional office, (laughs) which, okay, stick with me, is a group slash office that thwarts evil, evil, be that wizards or supervillains or just some bad people. Young women are found who have extraordinary abilities. They are trained X-Men style and guided by a group of oracles to where they are needed the most. This regional office has been created by Oyemi, who was a woman who was irradiated. Don't know how. Stories vary. And Mr. Niles, who was her, who is her best friend, who kind of runs the administrative branch of the regional office. The story of the attack is told by three different points of view. One of them is Rose, a 17-year-old trained assassin who's kind of a bit of a screw-up in that she can't even stick to the plan of the attack because she gets bored and kind of tumbles down an air vent because, of course, there's an air vent. There's always an air vent. We learn about her history being recruited by Henry and how she is trained, brainwashed, and told why she needs to attack the regional office. We also have excerpts from the regional office is under attack tracking the rise and fall of an American institution, which is an academic history of the regional office and its 
foundations and its fall. And we also follow Sarah, who has a bionic mechanical nanotechnology arm that she had installed um, after Mr. Niles offered her the chance to wreak revenge on the people that he claims abducted her mother when she was young. So for the chance to kind of take this revenge, she she gets a very, very uh, interesting arm that gives her abilities to do arm things. However, after she has finished wreaking her revenge, she is kind of downgraded to executive assistant and mostly has to deal with people asking her to order paper clips, even though that is not her job. And you also get a little bit of the office workers who are being held captive, who very much would just like to go home, but it's not going to go well for them in this time-bending hyper-violent science fiction fantasy that I think I would describe as Killing Eve meets Minority Report meets Office Space. And if you put all these together with like a little bit of bullet train in there, you will get this book. If you thought the Blackwood movie should have had more spine crushing, this is a great book for you. If you wish that superhero movies had more admin, um, then this is also a book for you. So if all of that doesn't sound too bananas for you, that I can, I guess, recommend that you pick up The Regional Office is Under Attack by Manuel Gonzalez. Nicely done. I applaud you for reading that. This podcast challenges me. What is also Banana Pants about this Banana Pants episode talking about a Banana Pants book is that I have an extremely vivid memory of Virginia book talking this book at some point, And she claims she has not. But I can hear Virginia's voice in my head talking about this book. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know where that came from. I have never mentioned this book before. Um, but yes, anyway, well, thank you for entertaining this, this topic. Appreciate it. And I'm glad you didn't hate it. I, I didn't hate it. I will say I hated the end. There's a part in the end that I was literally, no, no, no. Um, but most of it was pretty good. So thank you for the recommendation, Virginia. And and I'm not a person who takes recommendations a lot. So I, I appreciate that that you found one that I would like. Especially not from Virginia. That's a mistake. <laughs> Right. Okay. Well, well, thank you, Corinne. So next we're going to go to a person that I feel like deep down in their heart, there is definitely a bit of a banana pants growing. Pretty sure. Because they have actually, because I, I edit the podcast, so I kind of have to listen to everybody like multiple times. And I, I know that this person has used the word banana pants recently in one of the episodes in describing their book. And they are also the ones who have introduced me to Turnip Babies. So I feel like there is banana pants in this person. I'm pretty sure. Maybe they even have a pair of banana pants. I don't know. So Fiona, what have you got for us today? Thank you, Virginia. I think you totally nailed it uh, because I do feel those banana pants growing in my heart. Um, I love this podcast and I especially love hearing about banana pants books because I think I, I really enjoy them, but I have a low threshold for confusion. And if I know going into a book that it's okay to be confused, sometimes that helps me enjoy the book more. But mostly I just love hearing other people describe, like like breaking it down for me 
and and hearing these book talks. So definitely open to more banana pants, but like need some some like guiding rails, I think, which is is what you really provide. So thank you. I'm pretty proud of myself for for the book that I've chosen for this. And I I stumbled upon it. <laughs> with some like combination of the words banana pants and books put into Google and I can't seem to recreate it, but this is like the only thing it brought up and I, and I'm pretty proud of it. I don't think it's going to be Virginia type of banana pants book, but it is definitely fun to know it exists. So let's go back to the year 2011 to the great Tyra Banks. Did you know Tyra Banks wrote a YA science fiction fantasy. I give you Model Land by the great Tyra Banks. Also, with the help of ghostwriter Michael Salort, which is fascinating that they acknowledge a ghostwriter because this is not a good book. <laughs> if you're reading it, it's because it is banana pants and you get a little view into the insane mind of Tyra Banks. And that is fascinating and very enjoyable. Our lead character is Tookie de la Creme, an odd, tall, gangly girl with crazy hair and mismatched eyes. And she lives in the world of Metopia. This book is baffling because it's so predictable on one hand it's like a mashup of harry potter the hunger games and then like with a huge dash of rolled doll there's definitely like a lot of rolled doll influence here that and and so like it's got that sort of ya coming of age that you can totally see coming just through with all this like bonkers weirdo vocabulary thrown in that is not described in any way like it is an acid trip it's so strange. So in the world of Metopia, there is, oh gosh, like I, I'm, I'm going to struggle to explain because I don't know. There is Model Land, which is like an elite boarding school for like, it's not really clear what the function of models are in this world. They like kind of had superpowers. Some of those superpowers are very strange and not useful, but these are like the cream of the crop. The, the de la creme, if you, if you must, of the world. And it is very difficult to get into this school. Only seven girls are chosen each year to become intoxabellas. And then even from there, they have to like go through these, these difficult challenges and you don't, you're not necessarily like guaranteed to, to stay. Now, it's not really talked about a lot, but other than these like seven girls who get to be intoxabellas, it seems like everyone else is put into hard labor. <laughs> like if you're not an intoxabella, you work in a factory like in in like 20 hours a day in, until your death, essentially. So <laughs> there are smizes. What is a smize? I have no idea what a smize is. It's not a smile with your eyes in this universe. It's like a bubble that comes out of your tap. And there's a great description of the fluorescent crazy colors of puke and snot that it is and it gives you a 92 percent chance more of becoming an intoxabella and getting to go to model land so of course our plucky weirdo heroine and her strange strange friend who is on the run from the mental asylum and lives in a treehouse get chosen to become intoxabellas 
And they are flown there in what appears to be a giant testy airship, essentially. So it just goes on like this. It's a long book. It's like 500 pages. And, and reading the reviews is as fun as reading the book itself because people, like some people think it's just utter trash. Other people think it's amazing utter trash. And it's certainly, I'm, I'm so glad it exists. And I hope that Tyra Banks like writes a memoir because I care about her more than ever before. What a weird little warped mind she has. It says that this is a trilogy. I haven't looked into whether or not the others got published, but um, I really hope they did. And and I might go browse those uh, if they did, because I just like, I don't, I would love for it to get even more bonkers as it goes on. So again, this is definitely going to be a niche. Like you're going to read this be- because you want to see what it's all about, not because you want to sit down to, to a good coming of age YA. Y- you know, uh, like other people have compared it to like Twilight uh, and just sort of that that like very awkward writing. But what I found about Twilight is like the the amateurish of it made it easier to read. Whereas this is just like it's like mental ping pong uh, and it's very hard to to focus because you're getting all of these like crazy vocabulary words thrown your way without a description of what they mean. And you just sort of need to like ingratiate yourself. Like you just need to like like get into the book enough that you can just accept that a smize is a bubble that comes out of a tap that gives you a 92% more chance of going to model land. Yeah. So again, proud of myself uh, for finding this. Uh, Definitely not a Virginia banana pants book, but a banana pants book indeed. Round of applause, everyone, for Fiona, please, please. That's that's probably pretty bananas. And I feel like all of us may have just gone and tried to look it up and see if we can put it on hold because... (laughs) We would all want to read this. I am pretty sure. That is amazing. Sorry, I just have, I have one question. You didn't look up to see if there were any sequels, but did you look up to see if the Ghost Raider wrote anything else? Ooh. Because I feel like that could be that could be a bad rabbit hole to go down, but it might be a really fun one. That is a great idea. More info coming on that later. So while you do your research as, you know, as we'll do as a librarian, um, we're going to do our existential question for today, which is, what do you think about bananas? How do you feel about bananas? What do you think of or what is your free association when I say the word bananas? What is your favorite way to eat the bananas? You can answer whichever one question you like. Mark. (laughs) Well, as I'm sure Virginia chose me first because when she posed this question to us by email, I immediately responded back with a picture of Donkey Kong in the original Donkey Kong Country game with a giant banana horde raising his arms in the air, all happy as Donkey Kong is wont to do. Because <laughs> I remember that from when I was younger, and that's like just like seared into your brain as something like that you just can't forget from your childhood almost. Like, so then I think bananas that I think Donkey Kong essentially. Nice, nice. Many, many good memories for that. Corrine, bananas. I hate them. Bananas are gross. They're nasty. Why would you have so much potassium in it? It seems suspicious. Also, it's a fruit that you essentially throw half of it away. Why? Pointless waste of money. I would like to counter that by saying that 
bananas are the natural granola bar. You can take them anywhere, like because they have that great natural packaging. But I have some uninteresting personal facts about bananas. I um, I have to be on a low FODMAP diet for my for like a difficult stomach, uh, and that means that I cannot eat ripe bananas, but I can eat unripe bananas. So I often consume an unripe banana. Yeah, I know, which is gross. It gets that like little chalky like taste, which you know I just live with because I do think bananas are good enough to put up with an unripe banana. But also shout out to plantains. Plantains are really great, especially like a fried plantain. Yeah, like obviously plantains are totally different. Okay, but how is how is an apple not a natural granola bar in that you can also consume the outer shell of it? But like a banana can like 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 feel that like you can carry it anywhere because it would just adjust the shape according to your bag. So apples won't do that, I don't think. So yeah, you also have to like wash the outside of an apple because you're assumedly also eating the skin versus like the banana you're peeling it so if there's dirt on the banana peel you're probably still okay because it's sort of protecting the banana i bananas are sort of a weird one because for me at least they have such a narrow window of consumability because i don't like them too ripe and i also don't like them really unripe and so i have to get them within that period or they get put in my freezer for a banana bread i'll never make and so i see their purpose especially because so much potassium but i i don't tend to eat a lot of bananas i think i mostly think of a Doctor Who gag at one point where there's a banana involved because they're making sort of like an anti-violence statement. And so uh, the doctor like swaps out Captain Jack Harkness's gun for a banana and he pulls it out at like an important moment. And he's just holding a banana up to an alien or something like that. That's usually what I think of, but they are a very, very, I think, practical fruit. They are sort of also like the potato of the fruit world in some ways, but they're just they're hard to consume. I don't know. They're 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 hard to consume for me. Banana popsicles are the way to go. How dare you? So many feelings about bananas that I did not know. Uh, well, many bananas are actually going extinct. So I feel really bad for the bananas. Except maybe for Corrine. So I think they don't have feelings. How dare. Anyway. I think we are going to go to because I'm so glad to hear both Corina and Fiona books. I think it's like like really fun banana pants book. It's totally banana pants. And I think we're gonna go to someone that I feel like maybe is not the fun type of banana pants, but more like the strange and weird and surreal type of banana pants. Mark, what have you got for us today? And and I'm so glad you're talking about this author because I love his books. Someone is going to scream. I'm going to warn you now. Someone else is going to scream about this. I was going to say, after I introduced why I chose this book, that it's going to be much to the chagrin of a particular person. I think we all know who. So I originally was going to read a different book, which I did read, but I'm not going to talk about today because I wanted to talk about this book because in recent weeks, you may have seen the James Webb telescope images from across distant galaxies and around the world, like around the universe. And I've always sort of been interested in that kind of thing. I don't know very much about it. I'm not at all like an astrophysicist, obviously, or anything like that. I don't know how the universe works, but I'm just very interested in the universe itself, which is why I decided to read a book that very much is about the universe, its history from the beginning of time till now, but the stories go across time and space, which is why I'm going to talk about The Complete Cosmic Comics by Italo Calvino. <laughs> I'm going to turn my camera off out of respect for you, Mark. 
<laughs> so this this complete collection of cosmic comics was originally published in four different short story collections. They've been collected all into one volume. As I said before, like these stories are very much about the history of the universe from the beginning of time and the Big Bang all the way to the present day. The four different books contained with it are the Cosmic Comics, Time and the Hunter, which this one is mostly about uh, different species on Earth as they develop from single-celled organisms. There's one series of stories about a single-celled organism named Priscilla. There's the development of the continental drift and things like that, as well as the impact of the moon on the Earth's surface and the all that fun stuff. The third book is called T0 or Time Zero, which features somewhat traditional kind of stories, but with a lot of math, logic, and other deductive thinking introduced into the plot of the characters sort of in their psychological thinking of their situation within their story. And then there's finally World Memory and the other Cosmic Cox stories, which is very much just a kind of mixed bag of these three different kinds of stories that Calvino just decided to do because, you know, you just want to do more of this kind of stuff once you've got the hang of it. So in many of these stories where are narrated by this character with a really unpronounceable name, Fufuk is my best rendering of it is spelled Q-F-W-F-Q. So it's a, a palindrome as well as very unpronounceable. He is this kind of, I don't know how to describe him. He's almost like a sort of like universal consciousness being that has existed before the Big Bang. He was in the tiny little precise dot at the where the Big Bang occurred with all these other consciousnesses. And he sort of pontificates on how they're all crammed into this tiny little spot as they all sort of related to each other, even though they don't have bodies, they don't have brains or anything like that yet, but they still sort of know that they're each there and like in this kind of bizarre sort of point in space is the best way to really describe it. We sort of follow him throughout his kind of adventures throughout the galaxies over time. He takes on different kinds of forms in these different stories and some he's like, still just kind of floating out in outer space without any specific kind of body or shape. In other ones, he's a dinosaur. Later on, he becomes a mollusk that pontificates on like human society and like the philosopher Spinoza and all these other kinds of things in his own sort of idiosyncratic way. You're going to be in for like a lot of different time periods as well in this stories. Like they don't follow any particular order. It does not begin with the Big Bang. The Big Bang actually is a story that comes slightly later and he sort of goes back and forth between different time periods, almost as though he's kind of like telling stories to someone about his like memories of what it was like living in outer space two billion light years ago, playing with hydrogen atoms with his friends as though they were marbles. So in my view, these stories sort of fall into three sort of different categories. Ones that relate to the nature of the universe itself, the way its rules and operations work. Uh, another is the evolution of different life forms over billions of years, the way life has kind of changed, how it's remain the same, how certain things have developed over time. And the third is essentially just about petty ridiculousness of individual idiosyncrasies, our beliefs and actions amongst like this vast eternity in time and space. So like one example of this was a story called The Light Years, in which Kafug or Kafug, I'm just going to call him Q for now on to, in order to avoid the unpleasant sound in people's ears. Q, now and presumably in the form of a human, is on a planet, we don't know which one, maybe Earth, maybe another one, in which these powerful telescopes have been developed in order to observe like hundreds of millions of light years away. And he sort of notices that one day he's become the topic of observation from a person in, on another planet who sends him a cryptic message in the sky on a sign 
simply stating, I saw you. But what did they see? Hugh is quite puzzled at what this person may have seen of him. Like, what impression has he left upon this person? Why so nondescript? Why, why being so evasive? So at this point, he sort of launches on a kind of billions of light years long conversation across time and space with these observers as he begins to write his own signs and try to present himself in like an open space where he can sort of show his like true colors, his true generosity, his true self to these people as our sort of intergalactic Jimmy Stewart's like in rear window observe him from afar and like peeping in on his life as he goes about his time is relayed across billions of light years as the people that are observing him are essentially all the way across in another galaxy far, far away. There's also another sort of like, in terms of evolutionary stories, there's one called the aquatic uncle. As we sort of have this transitionary period as life moves from the ocean onto the land in the history of Earth, as it's kind of told like almost like kind of like an immigrant story of families moving from the ocean onto the land as they sort of adjust their way of living to the land where Q's obstinate great uncle Naba Naga refuses to leave the, the ocean citing old wisdom, idiomatic phrases, and just plain old faulty reasoning as he refuses to leave. So this kind of evolutionary process is almost kind of set up as like a, a clash between different generations, different generational ways of living, different ways of thinking between different generations, but it's set against this kind of scientific evolutionary background, which is quite a unique take on it. I just also want to make a brief note on the stories in T0 or time zero, essentially take a sort of standard narrative. Like, so for example, in one story called The Chase, there's a, a driver trying to avoid another driver who is out to shoot him. And so it's sort of like a car chase from a movie. But as he's, they're sort of going through this chase, the pursued driver sort of pontificates on the movement of the different cars as like bodies in space as they interact with each other as they're dependent on the movement of all the other bodies as they move in these sort of organized lines of the the different lanes in space are like lines on the road and things like that so he sort of inserts this kind of bizarre and scientific and mathematical line of reasoning into these kinds of stories that you may be familiar with but it turns them totally unique and sort of on their head by turning them into more sort of cerebral psychological story as opposed to a more action-driven kind of narrative. I also must mention the story, The Count of Monte Cristo, which, as some of our listeners may know, was one of my choices for my top 10 books of all time that Gabriel talked about in a previous episode of this series, as he sort of sets up Edmond Dantes and Abbe Faria as sort of two exemplars of different ways of thinking on how to escape from the Chateau d'If. The Abbe Faria prefers a more sort of scientific experimental method of trying out different ways, see what succeeds, what fails, in order to determine the true way to escape. Whereas Dantes prefers the more sort of deductive logic to think through how would a perfect prison be created? How would they try and create this thing to make it impenetrable and unescapable? And then based through that logic to determine where the fatal flaw would reside. So he sort of goes through like a deductive kind of way of thinking it through rather than testing and trial and error. In all these different stories, you get this kind of way of applying scientific or mathematical or philosophical concepts into these stories that I found quite interesting. So if you like stories that take a longer view in time or take concepts from a more abstract or hard to connect field and put them into a more sort of grounded, grounded quote unquote kind of situation in some of the cases, then I think you would also like The Complete Cosmic Comics by Italo Calvino. Thank you, Mark. (laughs) 
you still alive, Corinne? Still doing okay? She's ignoring us. I Mark, I almost talked about Give One and Winston like a traveler for this one, but I did not. It was definitely one of the most fun book I have read this year. Really, really enjoy it. Um, that's when I realized, you know, Corinne and I really, really are different people. Yeah, anyway, so I have kind of saved. I wouldn't say the best for last, but I definitely have saved the one where I think the whole world, the whole internet would agree is the most banana pants books ever. And I am so curious to know. Because <laughs> I feel like I tried it like maybe five times to try to read it and I'm like, I can't do it. Um, so yes, Gabriel, tell us about this most banana pants books ever. All right. Well, I have to say that in general, I am someone who enjoys a banana pants book, um, maybe almost similar to Fiona in some ways where I love listening to people talking about them, whether or not my own attention span is uh, strong enough for me to get through something is maybe a little bit of a different story. But I do, I do love a banana pants book. I love them when they're absolutely weird, kind of bad young adult sci-fi. I love it when there's fish-related immigrant stories with whatever Mark just talked about. I love, there's a mountain, there's a mountain and it's here and it shouldn't be ignored. And, and I also, I also love maybe it's something that's a little bit more grounded with the, oh, we have a weird agency and that things are happening. All of those, all of those are great. And when I think of a banana pants story, I mean, I do think of horror, but I don't think of horror in the sense of like the spooky monsters or like the stories that we tell in the dark. Because I think that in a lot of ways, those actually tend to be quite, quite grounded, at least for me in, in our understandings of like why they make us scared, especially if there's like some sort of Scooby-Doo monster to more or less unmask it's not something that i would necessarily consider banana pants so i decided to go for something that i've wanted to read for a long time and so i didn't get through the whole thing because it's big <laughs> it's big it's difficult um people take years to read it sometimes according to when i had googled it it said you can do this in 11 hours and i was like all right and <laughs> that's that's a very bold statement. You could read it in 11 hours. I don't know if you could understand it in 11 hours. And unfortunately, because as Virginia mentioned, it's a very well-known Banana Pants book. I only had it from the library for, <laughs> for the three weeks that you were allowed to have it. And there was immediately someone on the list after me. And I had even been playing around with my holds list, trying to make sure that it, <laughs> that it had actually, um, come at the right time. And I still didn't manage to get through all of it, but I managed to get through some of it. So there is nothing more terrifying, I would say, than a house you cannot trust. So this is something we've known, I think, since childhood. We're scared of the spaces under our bed. We're scared of the things hidden within that humid maw of our closets and our basements as we turn off the lights and you run quickly up the stairs, maybe on all fours if you're a little bit little bit of a freak, feeling certain that something must be behind us. We want to be certain that the house is not going to hurt us while we rest, especially if we consider that house a home. So I decided to read House of Leaves by Mark Z. Danielewski. 
So, House of Leaves. It's a haunted house story, but to call it that, I think, would be oversimplifying it. It has been actively called the scariest book ever written by people on the internet. And while it is legitimately horrifying, even with the bits I managed to get through, I'm not sure if it necessarily has earned the claim that it drives people to madness. But I can say with absolute certainty that it fits our banana pants theme. I think whether or not it's the sort of book <laughs> that could drive you drive you nuts or really, really scare you in some ways depends on, I think, your ability as a reader to lean into some of those strange, unmoored, ungrounded concepts that maybe like Mark was talking about with some of the more uh, universe-wide thinking and really just be willing to kind of put yourself into this very uh, existential, existential narrative. It's a haunted house story, but more than that, it's about obsession. It's not just morbid curiosity, it's rabbit holes. So this all starts when Will Navidson notices that his house is just slightly bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Now, this isn't a TARDIS. We aren't in a fun science fiction. Uh, This is supposedly real life. So he measures it, and again and again, and every time there's an extra quarter inch on the inside as compared to the outside. And that's not the only thing that's wrong in this house. There's a there's a door and you know doors we've seen them before. We use them all the time. Nothing inherently scary about a door. But when the door emerges from a wall when it wasn't there before and it should for all intents and purposes it should lead into the backyard. If you look at where the door is, there's no room behind it. It should be pushed against the outside wall. You can kind of go around the outside of the house. You can double check. There's nothing big enough that says, oh, hey, there should be, there should be more here. No, it should lead to the, to the backyard, right? But it doesn't. It leads to a hallway. A hallway that is dark and cold and impossibly long. The sort of long and dark where you could shine a flashlight into it and that inky black isn't going to move. Navidson is certain that there's something in there. So this isn't a story with a monster at the end of it in a traditional sense. There's no, and maybe that's a little bit of a, of a spoiler, but I don't think it really takes away from the book. There's no Pennywise hidden in the sewers. It's just the house. And as you can imagine, the word labyrinth gets thrown around quite a lot. There is certainly like the implication of a minotaur. But the thing that makes this book terrifying, and I don't really want to go too much into the little things that happen in it, because really without actually reading it, it loses a lot of that gut feeling, that gut feeling of dread that you get when you're reading a horror book. But it really plays on themes like uh, agoraphobia or even cosmic horror. There's a sense of being lost and unmoored in the house in the way that just feels distinctly unnatural, despite the fact that it supposedly, like you get the feeling that this couldn't have been made by people. It's too big. It's too long. And when you're in there, it's so easy to get lost. And you could drop a coin down a staircase and you're not quite sure when it hits the bottom. And so maybe one of you goes down there to sort of try and time how long it might take 
to reach the bottom, but there's no guarantee you're coming back. And the longer that you're alone, maybe the more you hear things and the more you hear the sounds of breathing or the more you question just how high that ceiling really is. So it is a very unique story. It's one that, again, I think you really have to read to kind of get the sheer scope of it. And the really the sort of madness that the characters are experiencing really pulls you in. But just talking about it or trying to describe it isn't really going to do the book justice. So I happen to have brought yet another story that is told through found footage. And in this case, the primary document is the Navidson Record, which is a Blair Witch Project-esque documentary as Navidson tries to explore and understand the house. But as it's a book, we're obviously unable to truly experience the movie firsthand. It also sort of throws a wrench into it that the characters, at least one of the characters, is pretty sure this movie never existed in the first place. However, we have two different narrators. And one of them is annotating and studying the record of this movie that may or may not exist. Definitely doesn't exist in our world, but it might in theirs. This is Zampano, who's a scholar who adopts a very academic style of writing throughout the book as he tries to understand the evidence that's being brought forward by the record. And he's kind of terrified of the answers that he receives. So our other narrator, unfortunately, is a rather unlikable guy named Johnny Truant, who has been providing his own notes and commentary on Sopano's research. Johnny's parts can be the most struggle in this particular work. He discusses a lot about stuff that could be interesting, but really isn't. He just love and childhood trauma and grief and his like unstable life. He's just really not a great guy. Also, good luck trying to understand footnotes because half of this book is written in footnotes, but the footnotes don't link up correctly. And There's just a lot. It's one where I would really recommend the physical book over like an audiobook, which I don't know how you'd even listen to an audiobook or an ebook because the typography actually asks you to like hold the book sideways at certain points or the text is overlaid over itself. In general, it really asks a lot of you. There are parts that are written in code, uh, some of which you can find the key for online, others that the community is still trying to crack. And this was written in like this was published in 2000. So there's poetry and sections that you might need a translation for. And that's House of Leaves. It's House of Leaves by Marx and Danielewski. And I'd recommend it to readers who maybe love Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House and hate sleep. And because this is a Gabriel thing, I got a twofer for you. This is the book that I would have wanted to recommend if it was actually a book. And it's the most honorable mention, I would say, for the banana pants category. Unfortunately, it's not. It's a work of multimedia speculative fiction that is surrealist, deeply philosophical, and it's moving in ways I'd say you don't expect. So you might have heard of it before. It's called 17,776, or What Will Football Look Like in the Future? And it's written by a sports reporter, John Bois. It was long listed for two Hugo Awards. And you can find it by searching the title online. It's hosted on the website SV Nation, which is an actual sports reporting paper. So a little bit confusing for me the first time I looked it up. And this story, it does start out looking like an article on football, which uh, fooled me for all of a few seconds before things start to get really weird. In the spirit of how I was first told to read this, I'm going to warn you now that the experience is kind of hard to describe but it's absolutely worth going into it without knowing anything about the story. 
if you don't want to turn off the podcast right now, it does involve the future of football. It also involves a stagnant earth, dealing with the effects of climate change, grappling with intense boredom, longing for community, and questioning what it means to be human. In 2026, so a date that's getting actually very close, people stop dying, aging, and being born. They also develop technology to stop people from being hurt or injured. And in John Bois' speculative work, most social ills were quickly eliminated with this stability, which, while a bit naive, in my opinion, is still interesting for this thought experiment because it was written in the wake of um, Donald Trump being elected. And it was Bois' way of writing a future that was kinder and softer, even if it was not necessarily happier, as opposed to a lot of the post-apocalyptic fiction out there. It involves many scenes. A deep-sea diver exploring a sunken New York in search of a rare autographed piece of sports memorabilia. A late-night AM radio show host commenting on a single football game that involves using tornadoes to travel across state lines. And he's mourning the lack of geographical diversity in the Midwest that would normally allow for a more exciting football game. Three space probes named 9, 10, and Juice reaching out to each other across the vast black, clinging to each other in terrifying, glorious sentience. So that's 17,776, or What Will Football Look Like in the Future by John Bois. And while it's not a book you can take out of the library, it is available for free online. And I would say as a piece of literature, it's actually really up there for me. I think it's very good. So you got a twofer. Thank you, Gabriel. Feel like I need to give House of Leaf another try the sixth time, maybe as a charm, because um, you've sold me on it. I just, I need to. And it's funny when you're describing the house, it's like, oh, it's so big. It's so long. You never know when it's going to end. I thought you were talking about the book because it feels probably like the book. When is this going to end? Anyway, well, I had a lot of fun today. I feel like I've got all kinds of good banana pants suggestions from funny kinds to like weird to absurd to everything, every kind of banana pants. So thank you so much, book friends, for doing this. And yeah. This is what this book podcast does. It introduces us to things that we may not normally read. So um, I am thankful for that. And I hope you enjoy it too. So um, we'll see you again next week for our next episode. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Thank mm-hmm. you.